Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following episode is directed, produced, and distributed by Leeward Podcast Productions. All stories contained within are used either with the author's consent or are listed public domain. If any of our terrifying tales happen to scare the pants off you, or any other article of clothing for that matter, it's not our fault, because we have announced listener discretion is advised. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Tuck In with McTavish. I'm your host for today, Nathaniel. Our friend and colleague, J.B. McTavish, is still missing. However, our investigators have been working on a promising clue, and they have authorized me to pass it on to our listeners in the hopes of getting some help. So here it is. Underpants. Independence from general underpants. The North is cold, but 46 and another near quarter finds me stuck in a brick and mortar. The West was one. Shall we try the East? Bring one plus one when it's legal to drink to the land of the short man who ended in the clink. If you weren't able to get all that, don't worry. We will post it on our Facebook and Twitter feeds. So just head over there. And now for tonight's tantalizing tale, we will have the 930 up train by Sabine Baring Gould. So while you tuck in and prepare yourself, here is a brief word from our sponsor. Leeward Podcast Productions proudly presents History versus Herstory. Hey, we all know spouses disagree on subjects both great and small, but how many couples are prepared to present their side for your judgment and listening pleasure? So join our husband and wife team, Nathaniel and Crystal, weekly as the pair face off on a whole range of tantalizing topics and incendiary issues. During each episode, one of their family will present them with two questions and then act as referee, judge, and jury. As an added twist, these parents have no idea what they face ahead of time. That's right, so you won't want to miss a minute of this unique and unscripted show that may just test the limits of Opposites Attract. Find History versus Herstory on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts today. And don't forget to check out our other wonderful podcasts on the Leeward Podcast Productions Network at leewardpodcasting.com. And now, 
back to our show. In a well-authenticated ghost story, names and dates should be distinctly specified. In the following story, I'm unfortunately able to give only the year and the month, for I have forgotten the date of the day, and I do not keep a diary. With regard to names, my own figures as a guarantee as that of the principal personage to whom the following extraordinary circumstances occurred, but the minor actors are provided with fictitious names, for I am not warranted to make their real ones public. I may add that the believer in ghosts may make use of the facts which I relate to establish his theories, if he finds that they will be of service to him. When he has read through and weighed well the startling account which I am about to give from my own experiences. On a fine evening in June, 1860, I paid a visit to Mrs. Lyons on the way to the Hassocks Gate Station on the London and Brighton line. This station is the first out of Brighton. As I rose to leave, I mentioned to the lady whom I was visiting that I expected a parcel of books from town and that I was going to the station to inquire whether it had arrived. Oh, said she readily, I expect Dr. Lyons out of the Brighton by the 9.30 train. If you like to drive the pony chassis down and meet him, you are welcome, and you can bring your parcel back with you in it. I gladly accepted her offer, and in a few minutes I was seated in a little low basket carriage drawn by a pretty iron-gray Welsh pony. The station road commands the line of the South Downs from Chantonbury Ring with its cap of dark firs to Mount Harry, the scene of the memorable Battle of Lewes. Wilsonbury stands out like a headland above the dark Danny Woods over which the rocks were wheeling and cawing previous to the settling themselves in for the night. Ditchling Beacon, its steep sides gashed with chalk pits, was faintly flushed with the light. The Clayton windmills, with their sails motionless, stood out darkly against the green evening sky. Close beneath opens the tunnel in which, not so long before, had happened one of the most fearful railway accidents on record. The evening was exquisite. The sky was kindled with light, though the sun was set. A few gilded bars of clouds lay in the west. Two or three stars looked forth. One, I noticed, twinkling green, crimson, and gold, like a gem. From a field of young wheat hard by, I heard the harsh, grating note of the corncrake. Mist was lying on the low meadows like a mantle of snow, pure, smooth, and white. The cattle stood in it to their knees. The effect was so singular that I drew up to look at it attentively. At the same moment, I heard the scream of an engine, and on looking towards the downs, I noticed the uptrain shooting out of the tunnel, its red signal lamp flashing brightly out of the purple gloom which bathed the roots of the hills. Seeing that I was late, I whipped the Welsh pony on and proceeded at a fast trot. At about a quarter mile from the station there is a turnpike, an odd-looking building tenanted then by a strange old man, usually dressed in a white smock over which his long white beard flowed to his breast. This toll collector, he is dead now, had amused himself in bygone days by carving life-sized heads out of the wood and these were stuck along the eaves. One is the face of a drunkard, round and blotched, 
leering out of misty eyes at the passerby. The next has a crumpled feature of a miser, worn out with toil and moil. A third has the wild scowl of a maniac, and a fourth the stare of an idiot. I drove past, flinging the toll to the door and shouting to the man to pick it up, for I was in a vast hurry to reach the station before Dr. Lyons left it. I whipped the little pony on, and he began to trot down a cutting in the green sand through which leads the station road. Suddenly, Taffy stood still, planted his feet resolutely on the ground, threw up his head, snorted, and refused to move a peg. I giddy-upped, and hee-haw, all to no purpose. Not a step would the little fellow advance. I saw that he was thoroughly alarmed. His flanks were quivering, and his ears were thrown back. I was on the point of leaving the chassis when the pony made a bound on one side and ran the carriage up into the hedge, thereby upsetting me on the road. I picked myself up and took the beast's head. I could not conceive what had frightened him. There was positively nothing to be seen except a puff of dust running up the road, such as might be blowing along by a passing current of air. There was nothing to be heard except the rattle of a gig or tax cart with one wheel loose. Probably a vehicle of this kind was being driven down the London road, which branches off at the turnpike at right angles. The sound became fainter, and at last died away in the distance. The pony now no longer refused to advance. It trembled violently and was covered with sweat. "'Well, upon my word, you have been driven hard,' exclaimed Dr. Lyons when I met him at the station." I have not indeed, was my reply, but something has frightened Taffy, but what that something was is more than I can tell. Oh, I said the doctor, looking round with a certain degree of interest in his face. So you met it, did you? Met what? Oh, nothing. Only I've heard of horses being frightened along this road after the arrival of the 930 up train. Flies never leave the moment that train comes in, or the horses become restive. A wonderful thing for a fly horse to become restive, isn't it? But what causes this alarm? I saw nothing. You ask me more than I can answer. I am as ignorant of the cause as yourself. I take things as they stand, and I make no inquiries. When the flyman tells me that he can't start for a minute or two after the train has arrived, or urges on his horses to reach the station before the arrival of this train, giving as his reason that his brutes become wild if he does not do so, then I merely say, Do as you think best, cabby, and bother my head no more about the matter. I shall search this matter out, said I resolutely. What has taken place so strangely corroborates the superstition that I shall not leave it uninvestigated. Take my advice and banish it from your thoughts. When you have come to the end, you will be sadly disappointed and will find that all the mystery evaporates and leaves a dull, commonplace residuum. It is best that the few mysteries which remain to us unexplained should still remain mysteries, or we shall disbelieve in supernatural agencies altogether. We have searched out the arcania of nature and exposed all her secrets to the garish eye of the day, and we find, in despair, that the poetry and romance of life are gone. Are we the happier for knowing that there are no ghosts, no fairies, no witches, no mermaids, no wood spirits? Were not our forefathers happier in thinking every lake to be the abode of a fairy, 
every forest to be a bower of yellow-haired sylphs, every moorland sweep to be tripped over by elf and pixie. I found my little boy one day lying on his face in a fairy ring crying. You dear, dear little fairies, I will believe in you, though Papa says you are all nonsense. I used in my childish days to think, when a silence fell upon a company, that an angel was passing through the room. Alas, I now know that it results only from the subject of weather having been talked to death, and no new subject having been started. Believe me, science has done good to mankind, but it has also done mischief too. If we wish to be poetical or romantic, we must shut our eyes to facts. The head and the heart wage mutual war now. A lover preserves a lock of his mistress's hair as a holy relic, yet he must know perfectly well that, for all practical purposes, a bit of rhinoceros hide would do as well. The chemical constituents are identical. If I adore a fair lady and feel a thrill through all my veins when I touch her hand, a moment's consideration tells me that the phosphate of lime number one is touching the phosphate of lime number two. Nothing more. If for a moment I forgot myself so far as to wave my cap and cheer for king or queen or prince, I laugh at my folly next moment for having paid reverence to one digesting machine above another. I cut the doctor short as he was lapsing into his favorite subject of discussion and asked him whether he would lend me a pony chassis on the following evening that I might drive to the station again and try to unravel the mystery. I will lend you a pony, said he, but not the chassis, as I am afraid of its being injured should Taffy take fright and run up into the hedge again. I have got a saddle. Next evening I was on my way to the station considerably before the time at which the train was due. I stopped at the turnpike and chatted with the old man who kept it. I asked him whether he could throw any light on the matter which I was investigating. He shrugged his shoulders, saying that he knowed nothing about it. What? Nothing at all? I don't trouble my head with matters of this sort, was the reply. People do say that something out of the common sort passes along the road and turns down the other road leading to Clayton and Brighton but I pays no attention to what them people says. Do you ever hear anything? After the arrival of the 9.30 train, I does at time hear the rattle of a mail cart and the trot of a horse along the road, and the sound is as though one of the wheels was loose. I've been out many times to take the toll, but Lord bless these spirits, if spirits them be, don't go for to pay toll. Have you never inquired into the matter? Why should I? Anything as don't go to pay them tolls don't concern me. Do you think as I know many people and dogs goes through this here gate in a day? Not I. Them don't pay toll, so them no odds to me. Look here, my man, said I. Do you object to my putting a bar across the road immediately on the arrival of the train? Not a bit. Please yourself. But you ain't got much time to lose, for there comes the train out of the Clayton Tunnel. I shut the gate, mounted Taffy, and drew up across the road a little way below the turnpike. I heard the train arrive. I saw it puff. At the same moment, I distinctly heard a trap coming up the road, one of the wheels rattling as though it were loose. I repeat deliberately that I heard it. I cannot account for it, but, though I heard it, 
yet I saw nothing whatever. At the same time, the pony became restless. It tossed its head, pricked up its ears, it started, pranced, and then made a bound to one side, entirely regardless of whip and rein. It tried to scramble up the side bank in its alarm, and I had to throw myself off and catch its head. I then cast a glance behind me at the turnpike. I saw the bar bent, as though someone were pressing against it. Then, with a click, it flew open, and was dashed violently back against the white post to which it was usually hasped in the daytime. There it remained, quivering from the shock. Immediately I heard the rattle, rattle, rattle of the tax cart. I confessed that my first impulse was to laugh. The idea of a ghostly tax cart was so essentially ludicrous, but the reality of the whole scene soon brought me to a graver mood, and, remounting Taffy, I rode down to the station. The officials were taking their ease, as another train was not due for some while, so I stepped up to the station master and entered into conversation with him. After a few remarks, I mentioned the circumstances which had occurred to me on the road, and my inability to account for them. "'So that's what you're after,' said the master somewhat bluntly. "'Well, I can tell you nothing about it. Spirits don't come my way, saving and accepting those who can be taken inwardly, and mighty comfortable warming things they be when so taken. If you ask me about other sorts of spirits, I tell you flatly I don't believe in them, though I don't mind drinking the health of thems that does. "'Perhaps you may have the chance,' If you were a little more communicative, said I. Well, I'll tell you all I know, and that is precious little, answered the worthy man. I know one thing for certain, that one compartment of the second-class carriage is always left vacant between Brighton and Hassock's Gate by the 9.30 up train. For what purpose? Aye, that's more than I can fully explain. Before the orders came to this effect, people went into fits and the like in one of the carriages. Any particular carriage? The first compartment of the second-class carriage nearest to the engine. It is locked at Brighton, and I unlock it at this station. What do you mean by saying that people had fits? I mean that I used to find men and women a-screeching and a-hollering like mad to be let out. They'd seen something as had frightened them as they was passing through the Clayton Tunnel. That was before they made the arrangements I told you of. Very strange, said I meditatively. Very much so, but true for all that. I don't believe in nothing but spirits of a warming and cheering nature, and them sort ain't to be found in the Clayton Tunnel, to my thinking. There was evidently nothing more to be gotten out of my friend. I hoped that he drank to my health that night. If he admitted to do so, it was his fault, not mine. As I rode home, revolving in my mind all that I'd heard and seen, I became more and more settled in my determination to thoroughly investigate the matter. The best means that I could adopt for so doing would be to come out from Brighton by the 9.30 train in the very compartment of the second-class carriage from which the public was considerately excluded. Somehow, I felt no shrinking from the attempt. My curiosity was so intense that it overcame all apprehension as to the consequences. My next free day was Thursday and I hoped then to execute my plan. In this, however, I was disappointed, as I found that a battalion drill was fixed for that very evening, and I was desirous of attending it, being somewhat behindhand in my regulation number of drills. 
I was consequently obliged to postpone my Brighton trip. On the Thursday evening, about 5 o'clock, I started in regimentals with my rifle over my shoulder for the drilling ground, a piece of Fursey Common near the railway station. I was speedily overtaken by Mr. Ball, a corporal in the Rifle Corps, a capital shot and most efficient in his drill. Mr. Ball was driving his gig. He stopped on seeing me and offered me a seat beside him. I gladly accepted, as the distance to the station is a mile and three quarters by the road and two miles by what is commonly supposed to be the shortcut across the fields. After some conversation on volunteering matters, about which Corporal Ball was an enthusiast, we turned out of the lanes into the station road, and I took the opportunity of adverting to the subject which was utmost in my mind. "'Ah, I have heard a great deal about that,' said the corporal. "'My workmen have often told me of some cock-and-bull stories of that kind, "'but I can't say as how I believe them. "'What you tell me is overly remarkable. "'I never added on such good authority before. "'Still, I can't believe that there's anything supernatural about it.' "'I do not know what to believe,' I replied, "'for the matter is to me perfectly inexplicable.' You know, of course, the story which gave rise to the superstition. Not I. Pray tell me. Well, just about seven years agone, why, you must remember the circumstances as well as I do. There was a man drove over from, I can't say where, from that was never exactly ascertained, but from the Henfield direction in a light cart. He went to the station inn and throwing the reins to John Thomas, the ostler, bade him to take the trap and bring it around to meet the 9.30 train, by which he had calculated to return from Brighton. John Thomas said, as, oh, the stranger was quite unbeknown to him, and that he looked as though he'd had some matter on his mind when he went to the train. He was a queer sort of man, with thick gray hair and beard, and delicate white hands, almost like a lady's. The trap was round to the station door as hoarded by the arrival of the 9.30 train. The ostler observed then that the man was ashen pale, and that his hands trembled as he took the reins, that the stranger steered him in a wild, abstract way, that he would have driven off without tendering payment had he not been so respectfully reminded that the horse has been given feed of oats. John Thomas made an observation to the gent relative to the wheel which was loose, but that observation met with no corresponding answer. The driver whipped his horse and went off. He passed the turnpike and was seen to take the Brighton Road instead of that by which he had come. A workman observed the trap next on the downs above the Clayton chalk pits. He didn't pay much attention to it, but he saw that the driver was on his legs at the head of the horse. Next morning, when the quarrymen went to the pit, they found a shattered tax cart at the bottom and the horse and driver dead, the latter with his neck broken. What was curious, too, was that a handkerchief was bound round the brute's eyes, so that he must have been driven over the edge blindfolded. Odd, wasn't it? Well, folks say that the gent and his tax cart pass along the road every evening after the arrival of the 9.30 train. But I don't believe it. I ain't a bit superstitious, not I. Next week I was again disappointed in my expectation of being able to put my scheme in execution. But... On the third Saturday after my conversation with Corporal Ball, I walked into Brighton in the afternoon, the distance being about nine miles. 
I spent an hour on the shore watching the boats, and then I sauntered round the pavilion, ardently longing that fire might break forth and consume the architectural monstrosity. I believe that I afterwards had a cup of coffee at the refreshment room of the station, and capital refreshment rooms they are, or at least were. Very moderate and very good. I think that I partook of a bun, but if put on my oath, I could not swear to the fact. A floating reminiscence of a bun lingers in the chambers of memory, but I cannot be positive, and I wish in this paper to advance nothing but reliable facts. I squandered precious time in reading the advertisements of baby jumpers, which no mother should be without, which are indispensable in the nursery and the greatest acquisition in the parlor, the greatest discovery of modern times, etc., etc. I perused a notice of the advantage of metallic brushes and admired the young lady with her hair white on one side and black on the other. I studied the Chinese letter commendatory of Horniman's Tea and the inferior English translation, and I counted up the number of agents in Great Britain and Ireland. At length, the ticket office opened, and I booked for Hassock's Gate, second class, fare one shilling. I ran along the platform till I came to the compartment of the second class carriage which I wanted. The door was locked, so I shouted for a guard. Put me in here, please. Can't there, sir. Next, please. Nearly empty. One woman and a baby. I particularly wish to enter this carriage, said I. Can't be. Locked. Orders. Company policy, replied the guard, turning on his heel. What reason is there for the public's being excluded, may I ask? Don't know. Express orders. Can't let you in. Next carriage, please. Now then, quick. I knew the guard, and he knew me, by sight, for I have often traveled to and fro on the line, so I thought it best to be candid with him. I briefly told him my reason for making the request, and begged him to assist me in executing my plan. He then consented, though with some reluctance. Have it your way, said he. Only, if anything happens, don't blame me. Never fear, laughed I, jumping into the carriage. The guard left the carriage unlocked, and in two minutes we were off. I did not feel in the slightest degree nervous. There was no light in the carriage, but that did not matter, as there was twilight. I sat facing the engine on the left side, and every now and then I looked out at the downs with the soft haze of light still hanging over them. We swept into the cutting, and I watched the lines of flint in the chalk and longed to be geologizing among them with my hammer, picking out shepherd's crowns and shark's teeth, the delicate rhinconella and the quaint ventriculite. I remembered a not very distant occasion on which I had actually ventured there and been chased off by the guard after having brought down an avalanche of chalk debris in a manner dangerous to traffic whilst endeavoring to extricate a magnificent ammonite which I had found, and alas, left protruding from the side of the cutting. I wondered whether that ammonite was still there. I looked about to identify the exact spot as we whizzed along, and at that moment we shot into the tunnel. There are two tunnels, with a bit of chalk cutting between them. We passed through the first, which is short, and in another moment plunged into the second. I cannot explain how it was that now, all of a sudden, a feeling of terror came over me. It seemed to drop over me like a wet sheet and wrap me round and round. I felt that someone was seated opposite me, 
someone in the darkness with his eyes fixed on me. Many persons possessed of keen nervous sensibility are well aware when they are in the presence of another, even though they can see no one, and I believe that I possess this power strongly. If I were blindfolded, I think I should know when anyone was looking fixed at me, and I'm certain that I should instinctively know that I was not alone if I entered a dark room in which another person was seated, even though he made no noise. I remember a college friend of mine, who dabbled in anatomy, telling me that a little Italian violinist once called on him to give a lesson on his instrument. The foreigner, a singularly nervous individual, moved restlessly from the place where he had been standing, casting many a furtive glance over his shoulder at a press which was behind him. At last, the little fellow tossed aside his violin, saying, I can note give de lesson if someone will look behind me from behind. There is somebody in de cupboard. I know. You are right, there is, laughed my atomical friend, flinging open the door of the press and discovering a skeleton. The horror which oppressed me from numbing. For a few moments I could neither lift my hand nor stir a finger. I was tongue-tied. I seemed paralyzed in every member. I fancied that I felt eyes staring at me through the gloom. A cold breath seemed to play over my face. I believed that fingers touched my chest and plucked at my coat. I drew back against the partition. My heart stood still. My flesh became stiff, my muscles rigid. I do not know whether I breathed. A blue mist swam before my eyes and my head span. The rattle and roar of the train dashed through the tunnel drowned every other sound. Suddenly, we were rushed past a light fixed against the wall in the side, and it sent a flash instantaneous as that of lightning through the carriage. In that moment, I saw what I shall never, never forget. I saw a face opposite me, livid as though it were a corpse, hideous with passion like that of a gorilla. I cannot describe it accurately, for I saw it for but a second. Yet there rises before me now, as I write, the low, broad brow seamed with wrinkles, the shaggy, overhanging gray eyebrows, the wild ashen eyes, which glared as those of a demonic, the coarse mouth with its fleshy lips compressed till they were white, the profusion of wolf-gray hair above the cheeks and chin, the thin bloodless hands raised and half open extended towards me as though they would clutch and tear me. In the madness of terror, I flung myself along the seat to the further window. Then I felt that it was moving slowly down and was opposite me again. I lifted my hand to let down the window, and I touched something. I thought it was a hand. Yes, yes, it was a hand, for it was folded over mine and began to contract in it. I felt each finger separately. They were cold, dully cold. I wrenched my hand away. I slipped back to the former place in the carriage by the open window, and in frantic horror, I opened the door, clinging to it with both my hands round the window jamb swung myself out with my feet on the floor and my head turned from the carriage. If the cold finger had but touched my woven hand, mine would have given way. Had I but turned my head and seen that hellish countenance peering out at me, I must have lost my hold. Ah, I saw the light from the tunnel mouth. It smote my face. The engine rushed out with a piercing whistle. The roaring echoes of the tunnel died away. The cool, fresh breeze blew over my face and tossed my hair. The speed of the train was relaxed. The lights on the station became brighter. 
I heard the bell ringing loudly. I saw people waiting for the train. I felt the vibration as the brakes were put on. We stopped. And then my fingers gave way. I dropped as a sack on the platform. And then, then, not till then, I awoke. There now, from beginning to end, the whole had been a frightful dream caused by my having too many blankets over my bed. If I must append a moral, don't sleep too hot. You've been listening to Tuck In with McTavish, a Leeward podcast production. If you are a writer and would like to submit a short story for our listeners' enjoyment, visit our website at leewardpodcasting.com for more details. We love to hear from any and all of our listeners. Find us on Facebook at Tuck In with McTavish and on Twitter at Tuck In Podcast. For now, cheers, and here's to hoping that we have McTavish back in here next week.